Welcome to Crossing the Chasm, a sound physician's podcast covering a broad range of topics relating to diversity, equity, and inclusion in healthcare. And now, here's your host, Dr. Greg Johnson. Hello, I'm Dr. Greg Johnson, and welcome to the inaugural episode of Crossing the Chasm. As previously stated, this is a podcast that is focused on diversity, equity, inclusion, henceforth DEI, uh, in the space of healthcare. I, too, read Simon Sinek, and I do like to focus on the why. And why I've elected to initiate this podcast is really because I think it's an extension of who I see myself as a physician in healthcare. My mission statement, as it were, is to certainly improve the healthcare of all of my patients. But I, I have always had a particular focus on improving the care of those who are most vulnerable and those who are most underserved. I believe that a focus on DEI helps in achieving that particular goal. We're going to spend time on this podcast addressing diversity, not only diversity of thought and life experience, as well as uh, individual backgrounds, including representation, including religion, including a variety of different uh, areas of identity. We're going to focus on health equity and understanding not only the historical significance uh, of what has occurred for historically disenfranchised or underrepresented groups in medicine and healthcare. We're also going to focus on inclusivity, which is a challenging one because it may be the most subjective area but it's also one that has significant impact because it's about not only people feeling that they have a seat at the table, um, but knowing that their ideas are going to be considered. Who I am is going to become relevant as we, as is uh, who are all of the guests on this podcast. And you'll hear in every episode, me simply inquire who they are, how they got into healthcare and why these topics are of interest. And for me, an abbreviated version is that I'm the child of immigrants from the country of Trinidad and Tobago, uh, raised in Austin, Texas, and had a variety of experiences, both educationally as well as experientially, that have absolutely impacted my view of why DEI is important, why it's particularly important in healthcare. My father was a physician, the first board-certified Black family physician in the city of Austin, and that was really where my awakening to DEI came forward because I had a least rudimentary understanding that prior to my father being there, many individuals didn't have access to health care because no one would practice in their community. Nobody would practice primary family medicine in those communities. And that had a significant impact in terms of how not only I viewed my father, but how I viewed healthcare in general. My experience in higher education absolutely impacted my view on the importance of diversity and what it can mean to have lack of diversity within higher educational environments and how that can ultimately impact patients. And having the opportunity to practice in a variety of environments has certainly brought to light what the health equity impact is or health disparities uh, impact is at the individual level with patients that I directly cared for. So I'm looking forward to not only contributing to the conversation, but honestly, you're, as a listener, contributing in terms of considering 
opportunities to help solve problems because this isn't merely about discussing it, but you'll hear me ask and in many instances receive some pretty insightful questions about not only what are the, our issues, but how do we get a, go about solving them. So welcome to the podcast. Look forward to being here and sharing some thoughts about critical care, some unique aspects and considerations of what diversity means in the critical care space with my friend and colleague, Dr. Sergio Zanotti, who inspired me to get started in the podcast space based on his Critical Matters podcast. So without further ado, we'll get started with the initial podcast. Well, welcome to this week's version of our DEI podcast, and I am joined by the president of the Topo Chico Fan Club, uh, as well as my neighbor, uh, Dr. Sergio Zanotti, um, who uh, quite honestly was the inspiration for creating this podcast uh, because he has uh, at least famous in healthcare circles, a wonderful podcast called Critical Matters. Um, where it uh, really discusses important topics in, in critical care medicine. And uh, I was fortunate at one point in time to be his guest. So he's done me the favor of returning. Welcome, Sergio. Thanks, Greg. And first, I mean, thanks for being a guest at Critical Matters. We had a, a very interesting conversation, obviously, of uh, racism in healthcare and a conversation that I think uh, overlaps what we're gonna talk about today and is one of those conversations that a lot of times I think are hard to initiate, but uh, in 2023, more than ever, I think are conversations that must be had. Yeah, thanks. So as we typically do here, Sergio, we love hearing a little bit about your story, um, how you got into healthcare. And so why don't you share that um, with folks? Sure, well, I. How far ago can can I start? <laughs> we had we had we had one guest start at two years old. <laughs> okay, well, uh, being being as competitive as I am, I'll start with the day I was born. Uh, <laughs> but uh, on, a, on an honest and uh, a serious note, so I was, uh, and I've shared this with a lot of people, and I think it's important to share. I was born with a serious uh, congenital heart disease. I was a, what's called a blue baby was on ECMO way before people even knew what ECMO was to survive. And uh, I think that that in some respects shaped my interest in medicine. I was a patient from a very early um, early age. Um, I quickly figured out that I was configured in a way that was unique in terms of, uh, of my heart. So that was also something of interest. But the reality is I grew up in South America in Paraguay after having lived in the United States um, from birth to, to I was six or seven, and uh, decided to go to med school in Paraguay, uh, came to train in the United States, and uh, quickly became interested in, in critical care, and uh, have been here for the last 30 years, uh, training and, and starting in practice. I initially was in academia, ran a fellowship, uh, had a small lab, uh, interested in very esoteric pursuits, but uh, eventually figured out that healthcare was moving very quickly and I wanted to find new challenges. So I joined a, a group of critical care practices that soon became part of Sound Physicians. And for the last uh, almost nine years have been 
the CMO of that practice, seeing it grow and working obviously with Greg and with other service line colleagues, trying to have an impact on the healthcare in a different setting of what I started, which was academia, but more in large uh, and small community hospitals around the country. Awesome. Thanks. And so obviously, you know, this is a DEI podcast uh, and whether in general or any in one specific area, why is DEI something that's important to you and why do you think it should be important to others? Well, I'll, I'll share why it's important to me and uh, I'll be um, 100% transparent and honest. My number one value in life is learning. And uh, I love to learn, I love to read, and uh, there is no question that the best way to learn and to move forward is by having a diverse number of opinions, a diverse number of thoughts, and that is the best way to solve the real challenges that we have in healthcare and life. So that's, for me, the number one and most important at a very, very elemental level. I'm a big believer that diversity in its many, many facets makes decision making better and makes learning learning more robust. So that for me is a starting point, and it's a very nerdy response, Greg. But I, I think that it's also a very pure response because really diversity for me means gender, background, the color of your skin, your culture, your language. What do you like to do? Who you love? Your age? How you got trained? And we could go on forever and ever and ever. But there's no question in my doubt that that makes um, learning, which is my main pursuit in life, and 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 learning not for the sake of learning, but to make a difference in the life of somebody else, right? Um, more powerful. And uh, if if you take it from that perspective. Um, I think that not only is it important, but it's it, it should be our number one priority. That's a really fantastic perspective because I, I think that that's um, uh, it certainly resonates with me. But I'm also a fellow nerd, so you don't have to worry about um, uh, any judgment that's coming from here. I think when I hear that response, obviously it resonates with me. But I think it's it's particularly challenging, and I would imagine that in critical care, it's particularly challenging because they're not a bunch of y'all. <laughs> and so, like, what are your thoughts with respect to, you know, the state of diversity in in the, the world of uh, critical care and intensivist medicine? No, for sure. I mean, we're a small, a smaller group, but I would push back a little bit, and I would say that um, Without going into the traditional categories of DEI first, just talk about critical care. When I'm rounding, there's a diversity of backgrounds at the bedside. There are nurses, there are respiratory therapists, there are pharmacists, there are social workers, there are family members, etc. The first step we can all make as intensivists is to embrace that diversity and to recognize that each person knows something I don't know as the intensivist about that patient that could make the care of that patient better. So I would say that from the get-go, diversity is right in our face, right? It's not maybe the same diversity that a lot of times is is, is talked uh, at, a, at a larger scale in society and politically charged sometimes. But I think that at the essence, 
it's really the same thing, right? I mean, their background is different. If you are a nurse, your approach to critical illness is different than mine. And both have inherent value for the patient, and that's what we should be seeking. I would also submit to you, Greg, that uh, there's different ways you can become a critical care physician or APP today, right? And that is also diversity. Uh, it's funny because a lot of diversity champions in other areas, so maybe gender, race, or ethnic background, um, are very negative towards a surgically trained critical care physician, right? They have that bias, that inherent bias, right? Because I train through internal medicine, so I will gravitate to those people who are the same by me. And that's why I find it very interesting that the circles, right, of who's in and who's out keep expanding, keep overlapping. And, uh, and I guess it's just starting with that realization that uh, no matter what environment you are, but in my world in critical care, there is diversity to be embraced and there is diversity that is not being embraced, right? Because we always tend to gravitate to the people who think like us, who talk like us, who train like us, or who look like us, right? No, I think it's that's great. I know uh, it's interesting in terms of saying that we're pushing back and I was thinking, I would have classified it under a different group because what you were talking, discussing with me was inclusivity and recognizing that we need to include all of these different roles in the effort of making sure that we're improving what's going on with patient care. And quite honestly, there are any number of reports, and I know it's incredibly important to you in the critical care space, like multidisciplinary rounds. Institute of Medicine, now National Academy of Medicine said like years ago, like these help improve patient outcomes. But that's still a topic that is not generally embraced in healthcare. It's, it's, it's tremendously embraced in critical care. Yeah. It's a, all, but a, all but a requirement. But ensuring that those voices and that they're included voices that, um, you know, we have to have them speaking up in order to better the care of the patient is critically important. So um, I hear you and I love the perspective in terms of, um, you know, where it's coming from. Absolutely. So I want to pivot um, to an area that you know is uh, super important to me, which is um, really just discussing health equity in general. Um, it's, uh, it's a huge topic, uh, and uh, frequently people are just like, it's too big to take on. And I'm like, bah, I disagree. Um, but are there, you know, and, and there are tons of articles specifically of, that exist out there for critical care medicine. Any areas that you or sound critical care or, you know, colleagues are, are, are currently focused on and, and what can you bring to the audience in terms of just visibility to um, notable disparities in, in critical care? Yeah, I, I think that uh, first, obviously, right, just recognize that a lot of our discussions and initiatives are really, really at the tip of the iceberg or very, very, very young and early stages and a lot of this is obviously thanks to the to the work that you're doing and pushing us to to not only think about this but to act upon this right i think that step number one is to talk about it now uh, COVID was a clear example of health inequity and critical care right and um, you look at the data and uh, uh, for many reasons um, we had different waves and during certain waves at least in my practice there was a group of patients uh, with different ethnic backgrounds that had disproportionate 
impact in terms of death, right? And this is as we did not have vaccines to getting vaccines, you could still see that there was something that it was not random, that was not equal. And uh, it makes you wonder also, um, what are the, the, the origins of all this? And that goes obviously beyond my expertise, but clearly something that became very apparent uh, because what I always say is that COVID um, didn't bring anything new to the world. It just raised the volume so everybody could hear at the same time. And uh, and that's what we all of a sudden realized when you have an ICU. I was I work in Texas in Houston, like you mentioned, um, that is packed with young, I mean, 40 plus year old Hispanic um, males, right? Something seems that is wrong, right? And these are the people who are dying left and right from, from COVID pneumonia. Um, um, uh, something did not seem disproportional uh, or there's more to it that we understand. The other thing that I find very interesting is that we slowly realized because of this respiratory disease that a lot of technology that we utilize in critical care uh, has really been tested only in people who look one way, right? I mean, uh, the white European or Caucasian, and we, we, we assume performance of these technologies based on a small sample. It does not represent who we're taking care of. So one of the first things that we've done in uh, within sound critical care is try to educate our clinicians just to start thinking about this, right? And, uh, you know, uh, we gave up, I remember talked about the pulse oximeter, is it racially biased, right? And some people, I mean, embrace that idea and are trying to lobby for better studies or just understanding how it could dictate different therapies, right? Depending on the color of your skin for certain hypoxia thresholds. And maybe that has implications that go far beyond what we understand, right? But that's just, I mean, the first step is to talk about it. Um, there's also obviously a lot of literature just, I mean, in terms of health inequity uh, in the incidence of critical illness, right? When you look at um, ARDS non-COVID related, when you look at um, thromboembolic disease, when you look at other diseases, the incidence based on different um, ethnic backgrounds is disproportionate and different, and it's not related to genetic makeup. That is one of the things that I think uh, people do not understand, right? That uh, genetically, human beings are much more similar, right? Than that we we really think, and that really a lot of the differences that we see in in in, in incidence and outcome are not dictated by genes, but are dictated by life experience that has been predetermined many, many generations ago by different events, different routes, right? And different things that, that happen that uh, make those populations more likely to a certain, to a certain path and outcome. So, so we're trying to bring awareness. Um, we don't have, I think, a formal um, metric target that we've really closed upon. An area that, that, that I'm exploring, but we haven't done really any I would say organized deliberate effort yet, um, Greg, is really the end of life area. I think that also what, what, what I have realized is that if I walk into a room to have an end of life discussion and a family sees me as a white, can I say middle age? I don't wanna say old yet, middle <laughs> age, middle age, middle age, yeah, middle age ma ma male, right? 
they have one reaction. This is an Hispanic family. As soon as I start talking to them in Spanish with no accent, a native Spanish, a door opens and we walk into another realm. It's a different world. It's a different discussion. So how is not that different for an Asian family? How is not that different for an African-American or black family? How is that not different from people who come from the Middle East? How is that not different for many, many other diversities that can go beyond, right? It might be an age diversity. If you're a millennial talking to a baby boomer, it might not be the same connection to two baby boomers talking to each other, right? So recognizing that these conversations are highly impacted by our awareness of these differences, our awareness of, are we, do they feel that we're part of the same group or do they feel it's us versus them, right? And, uh, and I think that there's very good literature to show that because the predominance of, uh, of physicians in the critical care world um, are probably um, um, not similar to a lot of minorities, that a lot of these, um, a lot of these discussions get shortchained or are not the same, do not have the same death value outcome as they do when people feel that they're talking with people who are like them. And that is just one area that I think is very interesting. One of the things that I think we talked about this a little bit in our podcast that we did for Critical Matters, uh, Greg, the, the idea during COVID that um, black families have to validate the humanity right, of uh, sometimes or the person who's in that bed, right? I remember that was a very powerful, I think it was, a, I don't know, it was a tweet or an article from a black physician, female physician who talked about her, I don't know, it was her mother or father who was dying from COVID and she felt like the need to explain to the team, no, 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 she's super highly functional, super highly educated, right? I mean, and, and, and that for me is just very disturbing to begin with as a, as, a, as a human being, but also as a clinician. But it's also something that, unless we talk about it, is a blind spot for me because it's not something that I can, I can, I can, I have experience, right? So, so I think that that's really the direction that I would like to go um, because I think it's the one thing that we can impact. And I also think that it's the one thing that we could always do better and with a, a large national practice could have an impact on all patients, right? And I don't have the answer, how we would measure it, how we would do it, but just being aware of how, who we are, where we come from impacts these conversations and how these conversations actually might have an impact on the type of treatment people receive, I think is extremely, extremely critical. No, I, I, I think piggybacking on that, I know that there was an article um, that I got to participate in. And, you know, one of the premises, and it's really the next research project that gets done on this, is there did appear to be a, tr a difference in terms of desire for different level of treatment intensity in COVID patients, um, particularly between non-white patients and white patients. Um, and, you know, with the premise being based on the, the known data that um, so many uh, non-white patients, particularly Black and um, Hispanic, Latinx patients are just <laughs> distrustful of the existing system. And that that level, then that they requested treatment intensity, uh, a higher level of treatment intensity to that point of, 
I, I need more intensity. And I do think that it affects the dialogue and how we as clinicians show up for those patients of, I understand, uh, I understand where you're coming from and, you know, no, I'm not here to harm you. At the same time, I understand why you may ask for additional level of treatment intensity when in some other cases, maybe we're not going to, to get there. And it was, you know, maybe there, maybe things will turn out differently or maybe it won't and, you know, we'll move on. And that's, those are the research questions that ultimately have to get asked. Absolutely. And, and I think that, again, it, it, it's a discussion, it's an ongoing effort, but, but also coming back from the realm of patients to our practice, I also think that there's so much to do yet, right, in terms of promoting diversity and really pushing forward and figuring out. And uh, it starts in medicine. One of the very clear um, diversity issues that I have seen, at least in critical care, is gender diversity, right? And uh, um, just, I mean, the fact that there's 50% or more uh, of women graduating our, uh, of, of graduating medical students and fellows are females. Yet, as you move forward in, in, in careers, you see that there is a thinning of that percent and what's going on. And it's not about the initial opportunity, but it's about what happens as careers evolve. And uh, we've talked about this offline, Greg, but I've seen uh, a disproportionate impact with COVID on our female colleagues, right? for many, many reasons and all the responsibilities that I have. And that's something that worries me tremendously. And uh, it's something that obviously we haven't figured out yet, but that we are trying to, to figure out how to, how, to, how to move the ball forward. And uh, even though we might pay the same amount, regardless of the gender, age, per work done for shift, if, if the conditions are not fair for, for, for our female colleagues, a lot of times they have to do less shifts or they can't take certain opportunities because they have so many other expectations and responsibilities. And that's something that we need to grapple with a little bit more. No, I couldn't agree uh, more with you. And I think looking structurally, and you mentioned that, that coming from the world of academia, there's now reams and reams of papers discussing how uh, you talked about advancing in, in careers, but I was also gravitating towards thinking about women in leadership. Um, particularly clinical leadership, because you mentioned it, right? Half of the, like, the graduates now are coming out women, but you even look in academia and even in clinical practices, and there are not a lot of women in, in terms of leadership roles for, and, you know, the question immediately asked is why? And I'm not going to assume it was if there's something sinister, but there's got to be something to that and something going on that, that's leading to that, again, disparity. And, and, and I think that back to, to that um, tie-in at the, what we said at the beginning of just looking at the literature, right? When you look at a, at a team or a group, there are studies that have shown that um, high-functioning teams have a unique intelligence that is not the sum of the individual members. Right. And that team intelligence is based on how they communicate with each other, so what they call a at the time we, we spent speaking, so if ten, if five people are on a team, if everybody doing a, a problem-solving issue speaks the same, that speaks to a higher team intelligence. The other um, independent factor that's been demonstrated is the ability people have to read social cues and emotions. And that is something that consistently, in all the studies that I've done, is higher in women than in males. So 
invariably, right, just from a gender diversity perspective, any team that is not does not contain multiple genders will have a lower chance of being creative and solving problems intelligently than a more diverse team. And that's, I think, just ties into what we we're saying at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, this has been great so far, Sergio. I always, a, a very or typically awkward moment during the, the, um, the discussion, uh, um, really desire people asking uh, a, a question directly to me sort of out of the blue. And so um, I call it the loaded question, or at least that's what I want to call it. Um, my producer, Jay, says that that's a terrible question, a terrible way to ask it. And so I'll, we'll find something better. But um, yeah, what, what question do you have for me? What's a, a hardball that you've got that you want that you would love to get a perspective on? Do you believe, Greg, that in terms of uh, promoting diversity, right? So from a, from being like, let's say I'm one extreme where there is no diversity at all. And we've seen, I mean, historically, right? Diversity has, has, has improved over time, right? But we're not near where we need to be, obviously. But do you think that the pendulum can swing too far? Is there a balance to be found? And how, how do you, how should we navigate that from a rational standpoint. Now, obviously, politically, it's very charged because there's people who are always going to push back that immediately, right? But my question is, could the pendulum go too far and what should we be careful with? That is a tremendously loaded question and I'm going to have to keep it on this one because it's a complicated answer. Uh, I think, first off, I think anything can have a pendulum swing too far. Um, and one of the areas that I know, I like in terms of particularly the concept of inclusivity, you mentioned diversity, I'm going to fold it all into DEI. And, you know, you mentioned it, diversity of life experience is something that's important, but diversity of dissenting opinions is also important. And how do you, so the topic of DEI and its global importance as somebody who really wants to promote DEI, at the end of the day, I think it's necessary to have people who say, I disagree. Now, they need to be able to base it in why, and they need to be able to be, to articulate that. And it can't be, <laughs> it can't be because I, you know, the Aryan race is dominant or things of that nature. But I think that we've got to find ways where, um, we, there is a balance, and that balance is making sure that voices that don't necessarily agree with the direction that we're going are, is is um, part of it. And that's hard because where we are right now is that, candidly, you know, when we're talking about where the pendulum is, diversity has improved. But if we're talking about swinging from three o'clock to six o'clock, we're at three fifteen, <laughs> and. I think we've got, uh, you know, with with nine being the other balance, and I think that that's 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 a hard place to be because the amount of effort it's taking to push away from traditional views on diversity, equity, inclusion is is really challenging. Um, I I think it is challenging um, when you're discussing. Um, 
you know, concepts of, uh, uh, of diversity to recognize that there is, um, and I'll focus on inclusivity, um, when people are discussing affinity groups or ERGs or, or whatever you want, and that is, again, typically an amalgamation of people who sort of identify as a certain self, right? I'm a black man, I'm, you know, and I'm involved in a black man's group. Well, that's inherently exclusive. I understand as a premise, we haven't had those groups. We need to be able to create safe spaces for the conversations, but in order to move the pendulum to get this a more inclusive discussion that really understands that, that's forcing groups similar to that to go, we have to open ourselves up too. Now, again, it's hard because when groups that have been historically <laughs> have hegemonic aren't willing to make those changes, then it becomes harder for other smaller groups to do that. But, uh, you know, the, the answer is, yeah, I think it is. It's a very nuanced discussion because right now um, that there's still a lot of inertia and, you know, and, you know, you and I are nerdy and we love lots of different concepts, but the simple fact of the matter is to overcome inertia requires a great deal of force. force. <laughs> so fair enough. Yeah. No, and I think that again, uh, obviously, uh, the goal is to move the needle and keep pushing forward. And uh, I think that sometimes people just feel that uh, in this topic the, that we're trying to boil the ocean. But no, I think that every day you have opportunities to make a difference. And the more times we we make a difference, the more the needle will will move. I think. No, I, I, you know, I completely agree with you, and I think if everybody can identify one thing that they do differently, then it's going to be a, that will have significant impact on patients, on patient care, uh, and on what you and I both focus on, which are patient outcomes. Like it's we've we've got to do better for for the people that we're serving. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Sergio, we're uh, is there anything else that you think is like? that you would love to bring to the table and highlight as a point of discussion, whether it's a, hey, read this or check out this um, YouTube uh, or, or podcast, something that you would recommend to the the, the hopefully more than four listeners? <laughs> well, I, I think that that really what, what I what I would what I would recommend is uh, to find safe spaces to talk with people about different experiences, right? I think that uh, we should ask more questions, right? Um, I know that obviously uh, for me, uh, even though uh, my appearance obviously is like that of any other white male in the United States and I was born in the United States, but the truth is I grew up in, a, in, a, in South America in my native language at home is Spanish. My my family identifies as um, um, Hispanic or Latino, and uh, it's a different experience, right? Uh, and there's some things that that are different. Uh, but what I would say is, uh, for me to talk about the black experience right, is not something that I've had the opportunity to do. It's something that I'm much more interested in, and I know that. You 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 were were nice to to join me on the podcast and provided that safe space to talk about um, racism in healthcare. 
But I guess the, the question really that, that I understand is if we continue to just follow people that think like us on social media, hang out with people who are similar to us, we're never going to be able to change our perspective. And that I don't think that you need to change the way you think politically or the way you think, but but we should be more curious about other people's experiences and not immediately um, dismiss them, right? Whatever that is. And I think that if people were just a little bit more curious, I think it'd be a lot easier to to, to improve. I mean, that that inclusion, right? Because I should be able to, like you said, to to hang out with somebody who thinks 180 opposite to me on certain things, right? I think values are a different um, topic, but ask people, why are you opposed to that? Why are you uh, against this? And a lot of times you'll find it's a misunderstanding or it's fear and and just trying to understand that I think can, can be can be more helpful. Awesome. But Sergio, this is Jay here. Uh, I think following up on that, when you talk about, because it's interesting, you say safe spaces, but it's like safe spaces to have difficult conversations. So it's it's those two ends of, of, of that to, to execute. I guess wondering, like, especially in the clinical setting, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a nurse. Like, how, how do you do that? Or are there challenges? Or what, what does that look like practically? Because I get what you're saying, but I, I think, think of that, like... Yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what, what it looks like practically is somebody who you have a relationship with. So So the best way to change how people think is their empiric experience, right? So I'll use a, a sexual orientation example because I grew up under a harsh dictatorship that in the 1980s in Paraguay, um, Alfredo Stroessner was the dictator for 35 years uh, and it was a very homophobic environment, right? Very um, harsh against homosexuals. Um, that's what you grow up with. And then you basically, I came to the United States and I went to a very liberal program in Chicago that obviously had a, 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 a gay resident association. And for a little guy coming from Paraguay, I was like, wow, right? So as soon as you engage and they become your friends, all of a sudden you realize that all the crap they fed you, right, is not real. Your empiric experience is telling you it's different. And that's why true kids don't see colors, right? And I think that we have, so, so the only way you can get to that is reaching out to a friend, somebody you know, and being curious and asking him, right? What do you think about this? Why is this such a hot bottom? How do you, how do you feel? What happened when you grew up? Why was this an issue? And, and be more curious, I think. So, so I think the safe space is a friend. And I believe that, that in medicine, especially, we, we all have friends who are a little bit different than us. Maybe not, unfortunately, in social media, it's like people live in, the, right, in, in, these, in these clusters, but that's more ideological. But I think just, I mean, finding somebody who you trust or somebody who you, who you know, who you work with, and, and, and asking, can I, can I ask you a, a question? I have a question about this. Why, why is this such, a, such an issue? Or can you explain to me a little bit better, right? And I think that really it's about curiosity, right? And, and, it, and it goes back to learning. I mean, it, it, it's interesting. I, I'm reading right now an old science fiction book, a Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein. And it's like about a human who grew up and he's a Martian. He comes to the, to the earth, right? And I always think about that, right? If there's always aliens, all of a sudden, 
the out group will be a totally different group, right? <laughs> and I think that's really, I mean, what, what we're trying to, 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 to get to the point. The more you talk with people, the more you see that really we're the same, right? We have the same fears, the same hopes, the same problems. And I think that's what, where curiosity comes in. So my safe space would be find a friend who is a little bit different in one respect and ask the questions. Awesome, thank you. I, I appreciate the answer. All right. Well, I promised you that we would wrap up in about 30 to 45 minutes, and we have done almost precisely that. And so thank you, Sergio, for being here. Uh, I always love listening to your perspective. Um, you mentioned we spent a lot of time discussing COVID, but we absolutely did become COVID battle buddies. Um, and once again, we will focus uh, on our next initiative, which is despite the fact that we live le uh, less than two miles away, we still haven't had dinner together. So <laughs> in person, virtually in we, part, we eat together all the time. Yes, true. Virtually we have one, <laughs> but, uh, but that's great. So thanks for being here. Thanks for the conversation. And um, we may have you back to discuss some really detailed stuff about health equity and in, Absolutely. Air and some specific topics. So thanks for having me, Greg and, and Jay. Thanks for the questions and organizing this. But more important, I think, thanks for trying to move this forward uh, within our practice. And I look forward to being back. Thank you for joining us for Crossing the Chasm, a sound physicians podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Crossing the Chasm wherever you listen to podcasts. Sound Physicians is a multi-specialty medical group committed to improving quality and reducing the cost of healthcare for patients in communities across the country. Learn more at www.soundphysicians.com.